Well, hey everyone, my name is Norton and you are listening to a supplemental podcast for the series, You Lost Me at Leviticus. Now, let me explain real quick what we're doing here. Uh, you Lost Me at Leviticus is a 13-week sermon series at New Denver Church where we are studying and exploring the interesting and strange and perplexing and sometimes shocking book of Leviticus. So the main messages in this series will be sermons that I preach on Sundays. And if you want to read along and study along with us, there is a reading schedule uh, we put together and some discussion questions and a whole bunch of resources. And you can access all of that at newdenver.org slash Leviticus. Um, now, our New Denver Church podcast feed is going to have each of those 13 sermons in the series, um, and we make those available usually on Sunday afternoons unless there's a technical issue. Um, and each of those sermons will simply be called Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, etc., right? But then in these supplemental podcasts, we're going to go a bit deeper. We're going to explore some questions we didn't have time to explore on Sundays. Um, we'll try to chase down a few uh, rabbit trails. I'm sure I will raise uh, some new questions for you to think about. So we'll just call these supplemental podcasts uh, Part 1B, Part 2B, Part 3B, and so on. So, make sense? Um, one other thing, uh, if you have been reading along with us or if you attend or listen on Sunday and there is a question that you have, and there's probably lots, but there's a question that comes out that you don't feel like we addressed in the sermon or we just didn't have time to address or something you've always wondered or something that makes zero sense, um, and there might be a lot of those, you can always submit your questions. Uh, you go back to that page, newdenver.org slash Leviticus, and you go to the very bottom, and there's a link there where you can just send in questions that are raised during your study and your reading um, that you would love for us to talk about, and I'll, we'll try to take a look at those every week, and if we have time to talk about them uh, during future sermons or podcasts, um, then we'll do our best to address those. So you can participate in this. You can play a role in helping us think through what do we need to talk about, what questions do we need to explore. So with all of that in mind, take a deep breath, and uh, let's jump in. We kicked off the series uh, this past weekend with an introduction, basically, to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, um, the third book in the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. And all we did was read the very first verse, the first verse of Leviticus, which simply says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And we talked quite a bit about this. We talked about how the very first word uh, in Hebrew of this book is the word Vayikra, and that that's actually the name of this book in Hebrew. Leviticus is a name given much later in, in Latin, but in Hebrew it's called Vayikra, um, and it means, and the Lord called, or and he called. Uh, we talked about how this first verse just feels like we're jumping into the middle of a story, and we are. Because this is a story that actually begins in Exodus, right? It's the story of the people of Israel being delivered from bondage and slavery in Egypt. 
And then God leading them out and into the wilderness and to Mount Sinai. And then at Mount Sinai, they pause and they enter a covenant with God. And we said that this covenant is almost like a marriage or a wedding ceremony. And then when that's done and they've decided to, to live together and, and Yahweh will be their God and, and they will be his people, um, then God says, I want you to build me a house or a home um, or the, in Hebrew, the word is a tabernacle um, so that I can live with you. And this tabernacle is sometimes called the tabernacle. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting because it's a place where the people can meet with God. And Exodus describes this tent of meeting in all kinds of detail about exactly how to build it, how, how, what it's going to look like. Um, and, and there's all these details in the second part of Exodus. And then it ends and we move right into the book of Leviticus. And, and that's where the story picks up. God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting, which they just built at Mount Sinai. And God begins to speak to Moses again. Now, we looked at this whole backstory in detail in the last message, part one. So, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, um, you really need to go back and listen to that. Um, it, it, it will, will be, you'll be jumping into something that maybe doesn't have a lot of context. So um, if you haven't listened to that, listen to part one that provides all kinds of background and context and lays the foundation for some things that we're going to explore today. So hit pause, hit stop right now, go back, listen to that message, and then you can jump back in. Um, if you did hear it or you attended church and heard it, uh, and you're ready to keep going, then let's let's keep going. Because I want to spend some time exploring this place called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And there are some really interesting and compelling things that are going on with this tent. Things that are going on culturally that we're often unaware of, things that are going on historically, things that are going on literarily, uh, things that are going on theologically, and things that are going on cosmologically. There's a big word for you, and I'll explain what, what why I say that in just a bit. So um, w w if we're going to read the book of Leviticus together, we have to understand the tent of meeting because it's not just mentioned in the first verse, and then we move on. But so much about what we read in Leviticus is going to be about this tent and all of the things that are going to happen at and inside this tent. This tent is so important. It's at the center of Leviticus. It's at the center of all the rituals that we're about to start reading about and discussing. It's at the center of of the most important ritual, the most important holiday that the book of Leviticus describes later in chapter 16. It's physically at the center of the people of Israel. When they're camped in the wilderness, uh, the tent is a rectangular area, and three tribes would camp to the east of the tent, three tribes to the west of the tent, three tribes to the north of the tent, and three tribes to the south of the tent. So so the, this tent of meeting is emotionally, it's the center of Israel. It's, it spiritually becomes the center of Israel. And, and literally, geographically, and spatially, it is the center of Israel's life. And so 
were first introduced to this tent in the book of Exodus. As I mentioned a second ago, the better part of 15 chapters from Exodus 25 through Exodus 40. There's one story sort of inner, thrown in the middle of there. But the better part of 15 chapters of Exodus describe this tent. So let me give you a brief description, and then I'll unpack why this is so important. And um, I just want to give you a mental picture of what I mean when we're talking about this tent. And if you're sitting at a computer or you have a chance, um, or you can do this on your phone, don't do this if you're driving. Uh, but if you have a chance, you can just Google uh, tabernacle uh, in the Old Testament or tent of meeting and, and, and look at images. And there's all kinds of images or depictions. Obviously, we don't have photographs because this was more than 3,000 years ago. But there's all kinds of recreations or, or pictures that have been drawn um, that are all, can be very helpful and help you visually see what this tent of meeting looked like. Now, uh, there were three parts to it. Uh, the first part for the tent of meeting is called the outer courtyard. Uh, this whole area, it's a rectangular area, and it's enclosed by walls. And these walls are put up with these tall poles with ropes attached to them and then tent stakes that are holding the poles up. And then stretched between the poles are these linen curtains. And so there's this huge rectangular area um, that has these linen curtains marking it off so that if you're on the outside, you can't, they're tall enough that they're like walls. You can't see what's happening on the inside. There's no roof above this. They're just walls marking off this rectangular section. Um, there are some doors at one end uh, where the curtains are pulled back. And if you walk through that, now you're in this large courtyard that has been marked off. And there's a few things that happen in the, in the outer courtyard. Uh, the main thing is there's a massive altar. <laughs> there's a massive altar, which is essentially when we say altar, we don't even know what that looks like because we don't have these kinds of altars in the modern world. But the altar back then would have been a massive fire pit. That, that's just the best way to describe it. And we're going to get deep into that um, next week and talk about what happens there. Uh, there's also what's called a laver, which is basically a bird bath. It's, it's a big pool of water um, that's filled with water where priests and people who are in the courtyard uh, could wash their hands. Um, and we'll talk about what that's used for uh, down the road as well. Um, so that's the outer courtyard. It's basically just an empty space. I mean, there would have been ton, lots of people inside it. There would have been all kinds of priests and people inside there. And there are these two things. There's the fire pit, and then there's basically the big, the big bird bath with water. Um, but then the second part of the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting, is an actual tent. So the cart, courtyard is just marked out by these, these, these linen or curtain walls. But then there's a tent inside the courtyard. And it's also rectangular shaped. And when we say tent, maybe kind of roughly think circus tent. It has walls and it has a roof. And uh, this tent, this building in the courtyard, this tent is called the holy place. And inside the holy place, this tent, there are a few things. There's, there's a special table where there's 12 loaves of bread on the table and that, that bread is continually swapped out. Uh, there's a small altar where incense is burned and there's, so there's always this fragrant aroma and smoke coming from the incense. Um, there's a big uh, lamp stand or lamp, uh, like a, 
almost like what we would think of as a candlestick or a menorah, um, where uh, lamps are continually burning and kept going to give light inside of this tent. And then at one side of the tent, one half of the tent is marked off with a separate room. It's partitioned off by a special curtain, and that room in one part of the tent is called the most holy place. So the tent is the holy place, and this one room inside the tent is called the most holy place, or you might have heard it called the holy of holies, meaning the holiest place of all holy places. And inside this small room, the most holy place is a wooden chest. The wooden chest is overlaid with gold and it has some intricate carvings and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark is sometimes referred to as God's throne. This is where God lives. This is where God dwells. This is where he sits and rules over his people. So that's what this whole place called the tent of meeting generally look like. Now, there's something going on beneath the surface. When, when you first read about this tabernacle or this tent in the book of Exodus, um, and there's long descriptions of it there, and then you get to it in Leviticus, and there's all these things that are happening there that are described in Leviticus. And we as modern people now tend to think this is just a tent, right? It's, it's just a space. It's, it's, it's kind of like a church building, right? It's, 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 it's just a building among a bunch of other buildings. It's where people go to worship God, so that's what makes it different. But it's just a building. It's just a tent. And that is not the way that ancient people, particularly ancient people, Hebrews would have understood this tent. There is something significant going on beneath the surface, and we just miss it. And we miss it because we're not a part of their culture, because we didn't live back then. We live in a very different world. We don't have their eyes. We don't have their senses. We don't have their worldview, right? And, and, and even in all of the descriptions of this tent in Exodus and then all the stuff about how it's built and how it's constructed and how it's used and then all the rituals that take place there in Leviticus and all of the things that they mean, we read all of that and we miss all sorts of connections and meanings that are happening below the surface because we're just not looking for them, because we're just not aware of them, because we don't live in that world. Because you see, if you were an ancient Israelite, from the very first instructions for how to build this tent, to what is uh, going to happen there, to, to, to the inauguration ceremonies that once you've built the tent, how you're going to inaugurate it and begin to use it, to all the rituals that will be lived out there, to all the holidays and festivals that would take place there. If you are an ancient Israelite, you would have known immediately that this tent is a symbol. It's a sign. It is a reenactment, or it is a re 
presentation or representation of what God was doing when he created the world in the very beginning of time. Now, do you remember the creation story from Genesis 1? Of course you do, right? We all know the first verse of the Bible. Uh, Even if you're not a church person, you probably know how it starts in the beginning. God created the world. But in Genesis 1, there's this description of how God created the world. And uh, let's let's just talk about that description. And we're going to talk about it literarily for a moment. Meaning, we're not going to get into the science and, and all that stuff. I just want you to think about this story as a story that's that's describing how God created the world. You remember he creates it in seven days, right? They're just described as days, and we're always kind of caught up in those. Were these 24-hour days? Were these long periods of time? But again, just just take science and all those kind of, just take all those questions out for a second. Just listen to this story as 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 an ancient story story that is told about who God is and how he created the world. He creates it in seven days, and there's this rhythm, and there's a pattern to this story and this description, and there's a plan, right? And there's an order of how things are going, and and the rhythm goes like this. When you read Genesis uh, chapter 1, God creates, he separates, or first he speaks, and then he creates and then he separates or he makes distinctions between things. And then he steps back and he looks at his work of creating and separating something on a specific day. And he sees that it was good. And we hear this is the day, the first day, evening and morning, the first day. Right. So on day one, it says God speaks and he says, let there be light. Right. He speaks these words and then he separates the light from the darkness. He's making a distinction between light and dark. On day two, he speaks again, and he separates the sky from the sea. The ancient text says that he actually separates the waters above. It's, it's, we don't know, is this an atmosphere he's talking about? But he separates somehow the waters above, the, the sky and the heavens above, from the oceans below. And again, it says he, he steps back. It was good, and that's day two. Day three, he speaks again. He separates the sea from the dry land. And then on the dry land, there are different kinds of plants and trees. And the different kind of plants and trees that are created produce different kinds of fruits. So this is important. There's not just one kind of tree. There's not just one kind of plant. There's not just one kind of fruit. There's oak trees and aspen trees and pine trees and fir trees. There's blueberries and apples there's holly bushes and tomato plants there's ivy and corn right there are distinctions between all the different kinds of plants and trees and fruits and god sees that it's all good on day four it says he speaks again and he made two great lamps the word is for is lamp there like a lamp you would have in your room, or sometimes it's just translated, he made two great lights in the sky, the sun that would mark the days and the moon that would mark the nights. 
And by the way, at this point, this is when you know the story isn't a scientific report on how God created the world. Um, it, it, it wouldn't really work to say that each day is just a million years because then you would have millions of years of fruit-bearing plants on day three before you even have a sun on day four, which is a bit of a requirement for a plant to grow and to bear fruit. So remember, this is, this is a literary story. God sees it's all good, and he steps back. Day five, God speaks again. He fills the water with fish and sea creatures. He fills the sky with birds. And again, there's a distinction, right? Birds are different than fish. They move differently. They breathe differently. They're made differently. They inhabit different spaces and different places. There's distinction between all the different kinds of birds and all the different kinds of sea creatures. And God sees that it's all good. And then on day six, he speaks again. And he fills the land with land creatures. And there's distinctions here as well. There's creepy, crawly things. There are small animals. There are big animals. There are tame animals. There are wild animals. And there are also humans which are distinct and unique from all the other animals. And it's all good. And then on day seven, we're told that God steps back and he rests. He rests from all the work of creating. God takes a Sabbath day. He steps back, he looks at his work, he admires it, he says it's all good. He speaks words of blessing on the seventh day. And then we keep reading and we see in the very next story that God is living in his creation with humans. He is there in the garden walking and talking and living and dwelling with Adam and Eve. And it's almost like creation is God's house. God is is building a house, and he's building it in a very specific order. He builds it in in six days, right? And, and, And he builds each room, and then he arranges the furniture in each room. I don't know if you noticed, but there's in the first few days there's there's rooms and things that he builds and then in the the next few days of creation he's filling the places of creation with stuff with animals with birds and with lights in the sky and 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 it's almost like god is arranging all the furniture and when he's done building the house he steps back and he admires this new home he admires the work he's done and then he moves in He moves into his house so that he can live with his creation. That's Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And so, hang on here. You ready? And so, when we get to Exodus chapter 25, here's what it says. This is Mount Sinai. The people have been delivered They've covenanted to be part of God, God's people, and they're sitting at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. Look at what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses, or he said to Moses. Him speaking is important. 
come back to that in a second. Here's what he says to Moses. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering, and then God gives them what the offering is they should bring, and the offering is really all the materials. Like, go collect all these materials. You need to get all this different stuff, all this kind of linen, and all these kind of wood, and olive oil, and all the, all, you, you need to go collect all these materials, and then he says, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. That is the people of Israel. Make this tabernacle, and remember the word tabernacle just means home, residence, dwelling place. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. In other words, we're going to make a dwelling place for me to live with you. And I've got a pattern. I've got a plan that you can follow. I have an order. I have exact plans that I'm going to give you for you to be able to make this tabernacle for me to live with you. And so in the chapters that follow, God actually speaks to Moses and gives him all these instructions. So Exodus 25, first time, it says, the Lord says to Moses. Exodus 30, chapter 11, second time, Lord said to Moses, 30, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses. That's the third time. 30, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses. Fourth time. 30, verse 34, the Lord said to Moses. Fifth time. 31, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. That is the sixth time he's spoken to Moses, giving him instructions. And then guess what? There's one more time that he speaks in Exodus chapter 31, verse 12, the seventh time that he speaks, do you know what he says? He says, you're done, Moses, building the tabernacle. You need to step back and rest. I want you to rest from the building and creating and working you've done. You and the people on the seventh time that he speaks need to observe a Sabbath. <laughs> this is not coincidence. God creates the world in seven days, marked by his speaking in Genesis chapter 1. In Exodus, he speaks seven times to Moses to give him and the people instructions for how to create a dwelling place, a tabernacle. In Genesis, on the seventh day, God rests from his work. In Exodus, on the seventh speaking, God tells the people of Israel to rest from their work. In Genesis, God creates the sea and the fruit-bearing plants for fruit and the lamps to give light to all the earth. In Exodus, when God gives them instructions for building the tabernacle, it's to install a pool of water like the sea in the outer courts, to install a table where you would put bread to represent the food and the provision that God gives you. I also want you to put a lamp in the holy place, a lamp that will give light to everything inside the tent. By the way, this lamp is a menorah. It has seven lamps. The number seven is really important. In Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, The Spirit of God, or the breath of God, is hovering over creation. And it's bringing it to life in this seven-day creation process. 
in Exodus chapter 31 in the instructions for building the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 35, it says that the spirit of God or the breath of God will animate the craftsmen and the artisans who are going to make the altars and make the curtains and make the tables and make the lamps and make the ark and make the tent. In Genesis, when God is done making the world on day six, it literally says he saw that it was all good. He blessed the humans on that day and he completed his work. In Exodus, when Moses and the people follow the patterns, they follow the instructions, the seven speakings that God gives them for making this tabernacle and creating it and constructing it. It says in Exodus 39 and 40 that when they were done, Moses saw all of their work. That's the artisans that were building everything. He saw all of their work. They did it just as the Lord commanded it. And Moses blessed them. And then it says, Moses completed the work, just like God completed his work. And in Genesis, when God is done with all of the work, he moves in to live and to dwell with humanity. And in Exodus, when the tabernacle is completed in chapter 40, verse 34, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting the cloud was God's presence and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle God moved in to his new home you see the tabernacle is a symbol it's a representation of the entire of the entire cosmos. It's a representation of God's intentions for all of creation. It's a representation of God's intentions to create a place where he brings order from chaos and lives with humanity. You see, the tent of meeting is not just a building. It's not just a tent. It is always about, whenever you read anything about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and it would later be built as a permanent structure of the temple, but whenever you read about this tent, it is always going back to Genesis, and it is always about God's intentions for all creation. So if you think about Genesis for a second, what God is doing in Genesis chapter 1 is he is creating order from chaos. There's one Hebrew scholar, his name is John Walton. He's written a number of books. There's a good one called The Lost World of Genesis 1. Um, He calls this non-order. God is creating order from non-order, that that's the world in the beginning. It's a world of non-order. Genesis says it's formless. It's void. It's dark. The waters of chaos are churning. It's a place of non-order. And so God, in seven days, begins making distinctions, making separations. It's not just this formless, dark void. Now there's light, and now there's darkness. 
I've separated the two. Now there's day, now there's night. I've separated the two. Now I've separated into land and to sea. I've separated sea creatures into bird creatures, land animals from humans. God is making distinctions and he's giving order to non-order. He's giving order to his creation so that he can come and live with creation and creation can flourish with him. But we know that things go wrong in the story. In Genesis 3, humans try to live apart from God, apart from his wisdom, apart from his rule, apart from his presence. And what they do is they introduce disorder into creation. And this disorder that they introduce affects everything. Humans now abuse the land. They now abuse their privilege. They abuse their ability to create with God and to rule over creation. And they abuse each other. And Egypt, in Exodus, Egypt becomes a picture of that, a place of systematic abuse and injustice and slavery. And so God saves the people from this slavery and he sets about his project of reordering the world of rolling back the disorder, of somehow figuring out how to redeem the disorder that has been introduced. And it's going to start, get this, it's going to start with a specific place, a sacred space, a new Garden of Eden, a tabernacle. This physical space that is built with meticulous order and meticulous distinction. And that meticulous order and distinction is going to reflect the original ordering of the world. It's going to reflect a new reordering of the world that's going to begin with these new people who have been saved and redeemed from the old order, the disorder, and now will be bearers of a new order. And so when you read these meticulous descriptions of order and distinction in Leviticus, and we're going to get to all kinds of chapters that are about separation and distinction, and this is holy and this is not holy, and this is, you know, all of these orderliness, right? And it gets boring at times, and it gets repetitive. It's like we heard that, and, and yes, that was the same as the last one. And, and, and there's all, all kinds of other times where you read something and you're not sure, why does God care about this detail so much, and why is this distinction so important and why does it matter that the priest does this first and then this second and then this third and you have to go in the specific order and it's essential right and the bread has to be put right here and it has to be changed every single saturday and the lamps have to go right here and the sacrifices have to be offered here and this will be sprinkled here and we read all of this and we start to think why does this matter so much it's it's just a lamp what does it matter where it goes? But for an ancient Hebrew, it was not just a lamp. It was not just an altar. It was not just a tent. Do you know what Josephus said? Josephus was a famous Jewish thinker and writer. He lived during New Testament times. 
He lived and wrote at the same exact time as the Apostle Paul. And listen to what he says when he's describing the tabernacle. He's a famous Jewish writer, and in one of his books called Antiquities of the Jews, he says, Every one of these objects in the tabernacle is intended to recall and represent the universe. You see, for the Israelites in the wilderness, the tent was not just a tent. Every detail, every action, every ritual that they undertook together there, it mattered because it reflected what God was up to in the world. It was about God's reordering of the world, and God's reordering of the world is going to start right here in this very specific sacred space. Now, that is a lot to think about. So let um, let me sort of wrap things up. Uh, by giving you um, a few things to kind of reflect on in light of all of this sort of description about uh, the tabernacle. So number one, just to kind of summarize, everything that happens in this tabernacle or related to this tabernacle or this tent of meeting and so much in Leviticus is going to happen in there or at that place or is related to that place Everything that happens in or with respect to the tent of meeting is always looking back to creation. It's looking back to Genesis. It's looking back to the way that God intended for our world to be. And it's also looking forward to the way that God intends for the people of Israel to be part of his plan of reordering the world. So you have to keep that in mind going forward. What's happening in the tent is about creation, looking back, and it's about what God is up to looking forward. There is always a bigger picture. So when we get lost in the weeds, don't forget the bigger picture. Here's a second thing, and this is more personal for you to think about. Um, Rituals in this tabernacle are formative for the people of Israel. The rituals that they will enact in this sacred space always point to something deeper, something more real, something as it was always meant to be. Uh, Jonathan Z. Smith, he is the most well-known expert in religious studies, in the field of religious studies on the meaning of rituals and sacred space in the ancient world. I mean, he is a legend. He died a few years ago, but listen to what he wrote. He wrote this. He wrote, Ritual represents a controlled environment where the variables of ordinary life has been displaced. Get that? Ritual is a controlled environment where the variables of ordinary life have been displaced. Ritual is a way of performing the way things ought to be. See, if you live in a chaotic world, if you live in a chaotic world where injustice and abuse are common, where our leaders are often irresponsible, 
and we don't trust them, where a pandemic has hit and and captured the world with anxiety and fear, where life seems to be spinning out of control, do you see how powerful it might be to enter a sacred space that is not filled with chaos, but that is ordered? A sacred space where God is still in control. A sacred space that will remind you that there is a God and he loves you and he is with you and that he is still ruling and that the chaos outside and the disorder of the world outside will be pushed back. That's what the tabernacle and that's what these rituals do for the people of Israel. Every time they enter this sacred space and they do a ritual together, they are reminded of those truths. And so maybe one question for you is, do you have that space and those practices in your own life? Do you have a sacred place? Maybe maybe not in the Old Testament sense exactly, but do you have a sacred place where you partake in meaningful rituals with other people regularly? And the word ritual, I I think, has gotten a bad rap. I mean, I I grew up in a tradition where we gave it a bad rap. Like it was just like to, to do something ritualistic was sort of like to do something without meaning and, and, and all those things. And so ritual can sometimes get a bad rap, but ritual just means something you do meaningful in a specific place that to use Jonathan Z. Smith's language, something that displaces the variables of your life, the things you cannot control, the things that are chaotic in your life right now that you have no control over, something that displaces that and something that is ordered and that reminds you of what is true. Something ordered amid the chaos that reminds you that God is with you. And, And by the way, these rituals at the tent of meeting, they were always done in community in Israel. There were no private rituals. Do you have that in your life? Here's one final thought, then I'll wrap up. Um, And this is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. The New Testament, which comes, you know, 1,300 years later after this is all happening in Exodus. The New Testament refers to the tabernacle or even the temple, as I said Later, the tabernacle would be built as a permanent structure, and that was called the temple. The New Testament refers to the tabernacle or temple in in a few different places. Um, We'll look at some of those down the road in this series, but let, let me just highlight a few of them real quick right now. In John 1, it says that God came and he took on flesh and he dwelt among us, or he made his dwelling among us. And the Greek word that's used here, the New Testament documents are written in Greek. The Greek word used here is the same word used for tabernacle or tent. That God came and he made a tabernacle or a tent to live and be with us. And in John chapter 1, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and Jesus is now the tabernacle. Jesus is the location of God's dwelling and presence among and with us. In John 2, Jesus would even say he's the temple. He basically says that one, you can go read the story, but he makes a a comment there where he basically talks about himself being the temple. If you want to know and experience and meet with God, you just come to me. I am the dwelling of God. And then Paul would take it a step further in his writings 
And he would have believed this, that Jesus was the dwelling of God and Jesus was what we call the incarnation, the taking on of flesh of God. But Paul would take it a step further and he would say, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have Christ in you. You are living in Christ and Christ is in you and you have God's spirit, his Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, didn't you know? Christians, he's saying this to Christians, followers of Jesus, didn't you know that your bodies are temples? Your bodies are temples of God. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. And there's a dual meaning here. At one level, Paul is saying, your physical body is where God lives. In your very physical, tangible body, you are manifesting God's presence in the world. And so the implication he teases is out in some ways is, so you need to take care of your physical body. Like literally, it's, it is holy, it's sacred, it's important, it's special. You need to take care of what you actually put into your body and how you treat your body. Your physical health is important and your sexuality is important. How you treat your body sexually is really important because it's not just a body. You, you can't treat it carelessly carelessly it is sacred and it's holy it is like a temple it's where god lives so your body is like a temple but there's a second layer of meaning to this and paul does this all the time he sort of says things that that can be taken in two ways but he often when he uses the word body he's not just referring to our physical body but he's referring to the community of followers of jesus He's referring to local communities, churches, not the buildings, churches, but the communities, the people that gather and follow Jesus together as a community of faith. Because when he says your body is a temple, he uses the plural for both words. Y'all, basically, he's saying y'all's body <laughs> together. You and others are a body. You and others together are a local expression of faith. Just like Israel in the ancient world, you are now God's presence in your world. Not individually, not, not privately, not, not personally, but together as a community. You are God's presence. Which is why community is so important. So, there you go. <clears throat> a whole lot to think about this week um the first message part one and then today's podcast part 1b has just given you tons of background and uh so i hope you'll tune into part two because it, it almost feels like we have just been dipping our toes into leviticus and it is time to jump in and we will dive in head first with part two we'll be reading through leviticus chapters one through three and we'll take a look at all that in our next message. So thanks for listening today.